This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Uh, we are joined today by Linda Greenhouse, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times for 30 years and is currently a lecturer and senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. We interviewed her earlier this year for her book, Justice on the Brink, uh, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Rise of Amy Coney Barrett and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. But Linda was gracious enough to um, join us for a shorter conversation, about a half an hour, to, in light of the leaked tentative uh, decision from the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe versus Wade, and thought it would be great if Linda was kind enough to come back to talk about that, because not only does she cover uh, the uh, judicial history of Roe versus Wade in her book, Justice on the Brink, but in 2010, uh, she and Reva Siegel published a uh, book called Before Roe versus Wade, Voices That Shaped the Abortion Debate Before the Supreme Court's Ruling. And uh, I thought it, it, that'll be worthwhile to get Linda's take on, okay, what does this mean? So what we're going to try to cover in 30 minutes are these three issues. One is what was the basis for the decision in 1973? Was it steeped in constitutional um, integrity? Was it uh, responsive to this social climate, or was it based on balancing the uh, rights of the mother versus protecting the life of the unborn? That's, that's one little question. And two is, what does the potential decision by the Supreme Court to overturn the precedent for Roe versus Wade suggest for other issues that might have been in this space of cultural contemporaryism. I mean, I don't even know if that's like a logical phrase. And lastly, if we don't run out of time, is to talk about the judicial versus legislative tension for deciding some of these issues that maybe belong in the legislature and not in the courts. So Linda, I know we're, for those of you listening, Linda and I are recording this early in the morning. So, and Linda's just back from a cruise. So this is a lot to jump into, uh, but Linda, thank you uh, for joining us on Just the Right Book for these conversations. Oh, sure. You know, these, you, you, you've uh, teased up a bunch of very deep questions. So let me, let me just give a little background about, I think what triggered your interest in having me uh, do this podcast, which is a book called Before <clears throat> Roe versus Wade. And, and what this book is, is it's really a documentary history a compilation of original source documents that tell us what was the conversation going on before the court decided the case. And a lot of it is counterintuitive. It's not 
it, it, it's not what we think it was. For example, in those days, uh, the Republicans were the party of reproductive choice. We what we saw. Say that again, Linda. <laughs> was the party of reproductive choice and the evangelical Christians, all of them, I don't mean every individual, every organization representing evangelical Protestants, the uh, National Association of Evangelicals, the Southern Baptist Convention, the organizations like this, all of them along with every other religious denomination as the debate over abortion was heating up in the late 1960s, felt obliged to take some kind of position on the question. And all of these evangelical organizations endorsed some limited right to abortion. In other words, they were not in the position of categorical opposition that they're in today. The only religion that was categorically opposed were the Catholics. And that's quite significant because uh, the, the third question you asked me to address was what about courts versus legislatures? And we know that a number of <clears throat> prominent people, including uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said, well, if only the uh, course of reform that was moving across the country had been allowed to proceed uh, and the court had not intervened at that point, we would have had a more robust grounding for the right to abortion. And, you know, that's a lovely idea. And as you don't agree in democratic theory, you know, I wish that were true, but that is a historical anachronism because what happened was, although a couple of the blue, we then you had the phrase red states versus blue states back then, of course, but a couple of the blue states, including New York, uh, legislatively, uh, opened the door to legal abortion. But what happened was the church, the Catholic church got extremely motivated and uh, set up the National Right to Life Committee and so on and started intervening in the uh, campaigns for referendums and so on in states like Michigan. And, and so there was a legislative lockup. Uh, reform absolutely stalled. There was a complete lockup to the extent that, and, and here's something that we talk about in, in, in this little, little book, uh, New York had legalized abortion in uh, 1970, 71 before Roe. The bishops went wild denouncing it from the pulpit and so on and so on. So that the next year, the New York legislature repealed the reform and voted to go back to the 19th century criminal mm. abortion law, New York state. And that's what would have happened except the governor Nelson Rockefeller vetoed the repeal. So that's an example of a couple of things. One, it's simply not true that legislation was marching across the country. And two, it's also not true that it was the court's decision in Roe that triggered the big backlash. There was a strong opposition, but, but you might say special interest group opposition uh, to abortion as reform started being in the air. What put it in, in the air? <clears throat> that was, I think, the first question that you asked. The real impetus for reform came, again, counterintuitive, not 
from what we assume, which were the feminist groups that were on the march in the second wave feminism <clears throat> in the late 1960s. No, abortion was not prominent on the feminist agenda. Much more prominent was, you know, equal opportunity in the workplace and in the universities and so on. Those were the big issues, childcare. The impetus for reform came from the medical profession, especially from the public health profession. And uh, there were started to be articles in public health journals saying illegal abortion is a public health crisis because there were something like a million abortions a year, uh, many of them unsafe, many of them leading to um, injuries to women uh, whose, whose reproductive future was impaired by uh, what these back alley people did to them. And so the it was the doctors who said, we've got to do something about this. These laws come from the 19th century. They make no sense. They're, it, it's a public health crisis. And so uh, at, at that same time, the elites of the legal profession, uh, the American Law Institute was in the process of revising their uh, kind of model, or what they call the model criminal code. Uh, the ALI, the American Law Institute, didn't have, doesn't have any, any power, but what it does is they put out model codes in various uh, aspects of law for potential adoption by state legislatures. Uh, and so they were doing the model penal code at that time. And they said, uh, we've got to do something about the criminality of abortion. We've got to have some reform in that area, just like other areas of the criminal law. And so they proposed um, a reform and some of the states adopted it. Interestingly, they were the Southern states. The companion case to Roe versus Wade, which came from Texas, the companion case, a case called Doe versus Bolton, came from Georgia. Georgia had adopted the American Law Institute model, which was not open access to abortion. It required women to jump through a number of hoops and to satisfy two panels of doctors that they were eligible and, and, and so on. The court struck that down eventually. But why did these Southern states adopt these early reform measures? It was because there were not very many Catholics in the Southern states. And so that level of opposition wasn't wasn't there. Maybe I've talked long, long enough and you want to intervene with, with a question or two, but I, I just want to urge people to approach this question on, you know, erase from your mind the various preconceptions and, mm. uh, and, and take up these little, this little book and read these original source documents and you'll, you'll see things really unfolded in a way quite differently from what we assume today. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I just always forgot about taking my pills and vitamins and I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now I've been on it for about a couple weeks and I love it. it. Doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, 
your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. Why do I consume it? I'm always on the go. And having something that I can mix together really quickly into a provided bottle is just the easiest way for me to take in the vitamins that I need every day. And not that I'm the most healthiest eater, but I do focus on what I consume. And the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting great is really important to me. And it supports better sleep quality and recovery, as well as mental clarity and alertness. And I think that's the best part about Athletic Screens, that it uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And as I said, I care about where my food and everything I consume comes from. And Athletic Greens is a climate neutral certified company. In 2020, AG purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old growth rainforest. And for every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go visit athleticgreens.com slash writebook. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash writebook to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Bomba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bomba's, you're also giving to someone in need. Bomba's designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They're made from super soft materials like merino wool, Pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy layers. There's a pair of Bomba socks for everything you do. They come in a ton of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that keeps you moving. Bomba's t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. And Bomba's underwear has a barely there feel with second skin support that might make you forget they're even there, in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. Our personal favorite product from Bombas is its running socks. They're breathable, they're moisture-wicking, and they're perfect both for high-impact workouts at the gym or on my long runs on weekends when I go out on the trail. So go to bombas.com slash writebook and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash writebook for 20% off. Bombas.com slash writebook. Book. 
Well, Linda, you know, I would uh, reinforce that notion because I did go back and, excuse me, look at the material and, um, you know, we're about the same age. So we were, you know, adults when these decisions, and I realized my recollection of the environment uh, that was going on was a little bit out of order. Uh, and you talk about in the book, and I'll just, you, you know, close this part of the conversation with that is ultimately in 1972, you talk about that the Republicans realized that they could garner Catholic votes by changing their position on abortion. And it was it was highly motivated politically to change their stance about abortion. But what I want to move forward to, Linda, with that as the background, and, and there's a lot more to it. And I, and I would agree with you, Linda, that people should go back and read it because I think it will help them think about the ultimate Supreme Court decision that comes out. But the question you hear a lot is that the basis for overturning Roe really begins with the lack of constitutional support it had when it was decided. And you talk about in the book that what the court was trying to do was balance the tension as I talked about in the introduction, between the rights of the and health of the mother and the protection of the unborn. So what, what how sturdy was the constitutional support for Roe versus Wade, or did it become vulnerable right from the get go? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, I don't personally, I don't think it was vulnerable as constitutional law as law had evolved by 1973. In 1965, people probably know here in Connecticut, Griswold against Connecticut, uh, found a right to contraception and found it by an understanding of the due process guarantee of the 14th Amendment and built out what due process means in terms of privacy and <clears throat> so on. I think people are, are familiar with that. And, and, and that was the the basis for Roe, it was an element of the due process guarantee, which is explicit in the Constitution. And uh, in 1992, the Supreme Court revisited the issue and reaffirmed the right to abortion and kind of built out a, a you might say, a more modern, more robust uh, constitutional framework that had elements of equality as well as mm -hmm. due process. The, the vulnerability of Roe came from, I have to say, um, the Legal Academy, uh, which was 99.99% male in those days. There were no women doing constitutional law. And the Legal Academy hated Roe. Why did they hate Roe? It's not that they hated the right to abortion. Many of them proclaimed themselves as being pro-choice. They were afraid that what the court was opening the door to was um, a kind of a reenactment of an earlier era of constitutional law known as the Lochner era from the early 20th century when the court gave an interpretation to the due process clause that um, uh, basically allowed the courts to, um, uh, to negate 
things like worker protections and so on have created a, 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 a right of businesses uh, through an interpretation of due process clause to stand, to stand in the way of progressive social legislation. Mm -hmm. And these basically liberal law professors said, well, you know, here we are again, and this is just terrible. So that, not that the public cared one whit about the constitutional basis for the right to abortion, but why, why should the public care? The public needed a, a, the, the bottom line. Reason. Right. Uh, but it, it meant that those who really were determined to uh, reverse course could say, oh, well, uh, famous professor so-and-so said this about Roe and the this famous liberal professor dumped on Roe and this and these words. And it was really very, very disabling. Um, a lot of this came out in Yale. Uh, a professor named John Hart Ely famously wrote an article in which he said, the problem with Roe isn't that it's bad constitutional law, it's that it's no constitutional law at all. Well, that's garbage. That was mm. garbage from the get-go, but it was a very quotable line. I just quoted it all these years later. And so that was... Um, you know, that's what was, that's so what was is it, is it that, what is it that the Alito leaked decision? And I think we have to keep stating that this might be an earlier iteration. It might have nothing that resembles the final one. We, we don't know what the final decision will be, but if this is representative, what is the constitutional basis for overturning it? If in fact, as you're saying originally, it was grounded in the well-settled due process law. Well, you know, I mean, I hate to be overly reductive about it, but um, I think it was just uh, Alito and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch all raised in the Catholic church and all grew up with the notion that uh, there was something profoundly wrong with the court having announced a right to abortion in 1973. It's been their project. It's why they were put on the court. Every Republican president since Ronald Reagan has run on a platform promising to appoint judges and justices who would overturn Roe against Wade. And that it, it's our politics that brought us to this point. But to your question about how does Justice Alito um, justify what he wants to do. I have to say he doesn't. He announces uh, Roe was egregiously wrong from the beginning. Really? I mean, the opinion's about 60, the draft is about 60 pages long. I invite people to download it. They can easily find it on the internet and read it and see what the heck he's saying. Uh, you know, he talks about, well, there's nothing wrong with overturning precedents that are bad. Uh, you know, Brown against Board of Education, we applaud because it overturned Plessy against Ferguson. Well, there's been, he's absolutely right. There's been a lot of overturnings in the court's history. All of those overturnings have been uh, for the purpose of granting more rights to more people. Not uh, less. Lawrence against Texas, which uh, constitutionalized gay rights overturned Bowers against Hardwick, which had refused to do that 17 years earlier, and so on and so on. Uh, there's never been a case where the court has overturned a precedent in order to take away rights. And Alito doesn't acknowledge that at all. He just says, Roe was wrong, wrong, wrong. 
and we're here to make something right, 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 and we're turning this whole issue back to the states. So, Linda, the the troubling part about all of this is obviously politicizing the Supreme Court, which has happened before in our history. I mean, there have been decisions that have been made, Plessy versus Ferguson. There've there have been some cases that uh, in this before the Supreme Court that said women weren't qualified, uh, didn't have the uh, genetic constitution to become doctors. Yeah, I mean, there have been crazy things that have been overturned. But does this decision, despite Alito's, you know, protestations, actually open the gates for other rights like gay rights, contraceptive rights? to be overturned as well. I mean, Alito it, falling into that thou doth protest too much seems to say, oh, no, 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 this is different than that. Is it different? Well, I mean, I suppose you could say it is different in that your question earlier was balancing the rights of the woman against the rights of the unborn. Uh, none of the other, you know, the contraception cases, the gay rights cases, you know, do do that. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's fair to say there's something different. I would I would frame it kind of differently. And there, there's a good debate going on in the legal community now about how far, how how much opening there would be, assuming that the draft turns into the actual uh, decision of the court. And what about overturning Griswold against Connecticut? What about overturning Obergefell, which was the same-sex marriage decision in in 2015, um, I don't personally see that because I don't think there's um, the sufficient political will in the country to do something like that. Uh, on, on the same-sex marriage issue, certainly uh, there's a majority on the court now uh, that thinks that Obergefell was wrongly decided and had these justices been on the bench uh, in 2015, Obergefell would have been decided differently. That's quite clear. But there are more than a million Americans now in same-sex marriages. And I think there's no way the court's gonna take that away. What the court is going to do, and it's actively doing this, is carve out great big, never mind exceptions to uh, the status of same-sex married couples. Uh, basically by using religion. So mm. people may remember the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a few years ago, the baker who wouldn't yep. bake for a same-sex wedding. And that kind of went away. So now in the next next term of the Supreme Court, we have the, um, the wedding website designer who wants an opt-out. I won't design wedding websites for- And he doesn't even have a business yet, does he? She doesn't even have a business yet. She <laughs> doesn't have a single customer. It's all a, um, you know, it's a phony made up case. Yeah, it's a, it's a case that the court nonetheless has agreed advanced. to. Yeah. Because what, what Justice Alito is desperately looking for is an Obergefell victim. He needs an Obergefell victim, mm. what he wants to do to Obergefell and, and he thinks he's got one in this case. Uh, so Linda, let's, let's close with um, uh, a question around uh, the legislative uh, possibility, because you talk about there's no support, there's no political support for, for gay marriage. I mean, depending on which statistic you read, 
um, over 60% of the country believes in having choice with a set of reasonable restrictions. And uh, so it, it wouldn't seem like there's political support for that for overturning Roe versus Wade either. And uh, one of the things, I don't know if you read the Jill Lepore piece uh, in the New York Times that was you know, one of the talk of the town pieces on Roe versus Wade. And she is pretty critical of Schumer and the Democrats for overreaching in the conditions that they were putting forth for their bill that would legislate um, to allow abortion and actually does think a bill could have been pieced together that could have gotten enough uh, support. Do, do you agree that with the right, the right ingredients that there could be a legislative solution to abortion? Well, that's an interesting question. I personally, I don't think the Democratic bill overreached. I think it underreached. And what I mean is, I think it would be very productive. And I've actually discussed this with Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. <clears throat> be very productive to embed the right to abortion in a broad pro-family piece of legislation that would bring back her wonderful child tax credit which was allowed to die this year, but we know was extremely effective in lifting families and children out of poverty. Uh, real protection in the workplace for pregnant women. Uh, there's law in the books, but it's, it hasn't really worked to protect women who choose to become mothers and keep working. Uh, Childcare, mm -hmm. uh, all these things. So a, a, a bill that would reach broadly and talk about reproductive choice for women and families who choose to become parents, who don't want to become parents, who make all these profound choices with the support of our government. And I think, you know, it would be, it would be hard to say no to that. I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there have been a lot of conversations since this leak uh, decision about just that. I mean, if you take you take Mississippi, which has one of the harshest um, conditions uh, uh, for abortion, it also has the highest infant mortality rate, the highest rates of uh, poverty for children, and and yet, I mean, I do hear little little glimpses of Republicans understanding. You can't say no to abortion and no to contraception and no to good health policies for women and families that those that that that, that that's a recipe for a nightmare um, that's a night that's a nightmare that, that we have in the in these red states or you know i'll just say i mean this may sound a little bit tendentious on this you know this sad morning as we're all coming to terms with what happened in uvalde texas mm. Uh, you know, these Republicans who care a whole lot about the fetus and haven't been willing to endorse any gun restrictions that might protect children who actually yeah. manage to get born. I mean, I, I find that disconnect just astonishing, personally. Yeah, I, I find all these disconnects um, astonishing. 
Uh, so Linda, I think we touched on these issues. We're probably, I'm probably going to have to reach back out to you in the fall and we'll have another conversation. I'm sure you're a busy in demand um, woman uh, these days. We've been talking with uh, Linda Greenhouse, who uh, is the author of Justice on the Brink and also the author of a, a book that was published uh, over 10 years ago called Before Roe versus Wade. And to the extent, Linda, that to the extent that this conversation can bring clarity, <laughs> I think I appreciate that you've brought as much clarity to it um, as we conceivably can achieve. And we'll keep in touch with you about uh, how this proceeds. And I'm sure we'll read your pieces on it as it evolves. I'm always happy to talk with you, Roxanne. Linda, thanks so much. You have a good day. You too. Take care. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. 